all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I want to start with the kids this morning. I see some out there, both online as well as here. I want to ask you a question, all right? What big event is happening in the heavens tomorrow night? Anyone know? Solfin kids? Soleros? I would say online, but you can't uh, respond. Okay, so here's the event. It's, it's going to be the alignment of two of the biggest planets in our solar system, Jupiter and Saturn. And so it, it, and mark your calendars because this hasn't happened during the nighttime in 800 years. And so chances are you're not going to be around for the next one. That's the point. So, so your homework, kids, whether online or here, your homework is to remind your parents that right after sunset, tomorrow night, you're going to look into the heavens, into the southwest corner. Look it up. Uh, someone smarter than me will tell you where exactly to look. But Jupiter and Saturn are going to always be on top of each other. And because of that, it's going to look like a really bright star. And you know what's so amazing about in terms of timing is the passage that we're looking at, most commentators believe, is the exact same event. In fact, we know for a fact that in 3 to 4 B.C., Jupiter and Saturn were once again aligned as a bright star. Many people think that was the Christmas star. In fact, maybe you've noticed in the news that that's been referenced tomorrow night. They're calling it the Christmas star. How about that? It's only happened a couple times since the time of Jesus. And here we are in that very passage. Here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and we're in the middle of a series right now, not looking just at the Gospel of Matthew, but primarily so. And we're, we're looking at a, at a, at a storyline here at Christmas time. we're calling this birth story. And what this series is doing, it's answering the question, what is Christmas? And this passage in particular is answering that question by saying, it's a call to worship. I mean, isn't that really the whole purpose of, of Christmas, and really our whole faith, is right worship. Uh, Scott, I, I understand what worship is. That's what we do on Sunday morning, but I thought that what we do the rest of the week, okay, I'm not sure what's going on. I feel like I'm on a cruise ship right now. And I'm a, anyway, uh, the, the lights of Broadway are on me here. But the, the point being is that when we were in that place of worship, right, and we say, well, that's what we do on Sunday morning, but what I want, want you to see this morning with me is that worship is more than what we do on Sunday morning. Worship is a attitude of the heart. Worship is how we live our lives between the Sundays. And just as this passage here 
as we're told with the wise men, that the wise men were directed towards the right place of worship. I want to suggest to you this morning that this passage has the opportunity to direct us to the right place of worship as well. So three things this morning to to guide us, so to speak, along the way. Number one, I want us to see uh, where to look for right worship. Number two, who should be looking for that sort of worship. And finally, what do we do when we arrive at the place of right worship? Okay? So here's the first thing. It's where to look. And speaking of looking, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. There's a hymn, it's We Three Kings, and uh, I I don't want to burst any bubbles here this morning, but the hymn's got it wrong. These were not kings. We're told here that they're magi. And magi, we get the word magic from that, magicians. These were astrologers. And uh, some of you are thinking, oh, that's that's like a late-night infomercial, right? Uh, I need some advice on my relationship or my finances. Uh, But this is more like astrology here. And, in fact, I I was at uh, Lowe's yesterday, and I was checking out, and and the two uh, service workers there who were checking me out, they were having a conversation, and one of them said to the other, oh, well, he responded that way because he's Pisces. I thought, how about that? It's alive and well, right? And so, and what Matthew's saying here is that, no, these are, these are wise men in that sense. They're astrologers, and what they did was they would look to the heavens for meaning, spiritual meaning, looking to the heavens as a sort of roadmap. And, and as they looked to the heavens, they saw something the crystal star. And, and here's what they would have thought. They would have said, oh, there's, there's Jupiter and Saturn, because back in the ancient times, you didn't need a telescope to see the two largest planets. In fact, long before the time of Jesus, the ancients had been studying those two planets. And now Jupiter was known as the king planet. It was the kingly planet because it was the largest one. And, and Saturn was associated with a certain part of the world called the Westland. And you know what the Westland was 2,000 years ago? Palestine. And so the Magi, and many commentators think maybe it was Babylon that they came from. It was sort of a week's journey. We know that. But regardless of where they came from, what they would have seen is that they were seeing the promise, according to the stars, of a king being born. Where? Westland. Palestine. They put those two things together, and they said, we must go. And so they find themselves on a road trip, committed to that, and they end up in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the place that they would have expected to find the king. It made sense because Jerusalem was the city of its day. It was the great city of Palestine in its time. In fact, there was a great king there, King Herod, that we'll talk about in just a second. But to their amazement, to their surprise, of course, the king that they're looking for is not in Jerusalem, is it? But it's down the road. And so they came with an expectation and they received the unexpected instead. Here's where I think the rubber meets the road for us. I think a lot of times in our lives today, we're looking for greatness in the wrong places. There's a woman named Sheila Wall. She was a Christian singer, and she was the co-host of a program that some of you probably have never heard of, but, but for your parents especially, for some of you who grew up in the church, maybe you're familiar with it. It's called the 700 Club. Ever, ever heard of it before? It's 700 Club. All right. see a lot of nodding there. Maybe online as well. And, and so she was the co-host, and she was really well-known. She was pretty famous in her sort of world, in her bubble. 
And, and so as a pretty well-known singer, there was a lot of pressure upon her as the co-host of the show that racked in millions of dollars and millions of fans globally. It was one of the largest cable Christian shows of its time. Like She had a lot of fame. She had some fortune as well, but she hit the wall. And in her autobiography, I want to read just a, a section of what happened to her one day because she ended up having a mental breakdown. Here's what it said. One morning, I was sitting on national television with my nice suit and my inflatable hairdo. They, if you remember, her big hairdos. Okay. And that night, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital. It was the kindest thing God could have done to me. The very first day in the hospital, the psychiatrist asked me, Who are you? I'm the co-host of the 700 Club. That's not what I meant, he said. Well, I'm a writer. I'm a singer. That's not what I meant. Who are you? I don't have a clue, I said. And he replied, now that's right. And that's why you're here. Sheila had come to the realization point through suffering that the search for greatness wasn't where she thought it was. The word worship actually comes from two words. It means to find the worth in something. Worth-ship is actually where we get the English word from. It means to declare the worth of someone or something. And I want you to know that we live in a world that is secular as it is. We are all about worship today. The question isn't, are we going to be worshipers? The question is, where are we going to look for worship? And what we find today is that we will find anything and everything as a place of worship apart from God himself. It could be Hollywood. It could be Washington, D.C. in the political realm. It could be something else. But there are things constantly around us that we search for greatness. It's either in us or we see it in someone else. We see it in something else. And we look to it to establish its worth, its value, or our worth and our value, you see. And so the first thing I want us to see is is that we are just like these magi 2,000 years ago. We are no, no different. We're made for greatness. We're looking for greatness, but we can't quite arrive at its true source, you see. There's a, there's a guy named N.T. Wright. It's a guy. He's a pastor and a theologian. Probably my favorite, actually, now that I think about it. And one of the things that he said, and I think Sheila Walsh would agree with this, you know, one of the things he said was that, that when you worship rightly, when you know the true source, what it does is it makes you more human. Because we were made for right worship, and so when we're worshiping God, rightfully so, it actually brings out the flavor of our humanity in a way that brings glory. Glory to God and glory to ourselves. But then he goes on to say this in a book called Surprised by Hope. Listen to what he says. Conversely, when you give that same total worship to anything or anyone else, you shrink as a human being. It doesn't, of course, feel like that at the time. When you worship part of the creation as though it were the creator himself, in other words, when you worship an idol, you may well feel a brief high. But like an hallucinatory drug, the worship achieves its effect at a cost. When the effect is over, you are less of a human being than you were to begin with. That is the price of idolatry. We're made for worship, but when we don't locate where the right place of worship is, we lose our humanity, is what N.T. Wright is saying. And Sheila Walsh 
found herself there, saying the exact same thing. So, where does the passage tell us to look for right worship? It's the character of God itself, actually. That's where. You know, can you imagine, by the way, I didn't say this earlier, but Matthew, he uses the idea of the magic here in a very positive sense. I mean, they, they really are the heroes, quote-unquote, of the, of the group characters here we'll talk more about here in a second. Uh, these pagan magicians are, are the ones who are thought of very positively. And the word magi is used elsewhere in both the Old and the New Testament. This is the only place it's used in a positive sense. I mean, early Christians, the Jewish community, uh, looked in a derogatory sense upon astrology at the time, right? But here it's different. And here's what I think is really just so fascinating about this little passage here, is that if we were to, to uh, uh, create a religion, let's say, let's just say this morning that you're struggling to believe that Christianity to be true, is it, is it really the revealed uh, work of God? Or is it just like another religion, just that it's made up by people? Listen, if Christianity was made up, you would never make a religion with a storyline like this. That's the, I want you to hear that again. You would never. Why? Who would want to follow a religion like this where you locate the hero? The, the heart of the story being Jesus Christ. I mean, what would you do? You would do what the Greek and Romans did. The Greek and Romans in their mythology, what would the gods do? The gods would have these epic battles in the heavens, right? They have these epic battles, and then they would come down to earth, and they have more epic battles. And they have these epic romances with, with especially females on earth, and that's the whole mythology of Greek and Rome and so forth. And all religions have these great stories like that. But only Christianity says, no, 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 it's not even Jerusalem. It's not the epic storyline. It's not the epic movie. It's in a place that had, at best, a flashing stoplight, and that's it. I mean, they didn't even have a a post office there. The Wi-Fi connections were non-existent. I mean, this is a place where, like, no one went to. It was called Bethlehem. No one knew about it. It was only six miles away, but back then that was a long uh, way away. You didn't have cars and such. But still, it's not Jerusalem. It's the opposite of Jerusalem. And so the story of our faith doesn't begin with greatness as the world defines it. The story of our faith begins in a podunk little village, and that's where God reveals his character to us. The one who comes in humility. It's not the epic movie line. It's a little town of Bethlehem. Listen to one of the stanzas. A little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The whole of our faith rests in a dark little town. All of our hopes, all of our fears. Think about this year, for instance. All of it comes down not to the tinsel town, not to that kind of tinsel, but to Bethlehem. And so I want to ask you here at the end of this, do you believe that you're looking in the right place, which is the wrong place, according to the world? Can you locate your worship there? Can you locate yourself not in Jerusalem, not in New York City, not in the big town of Atlanta, not in the, but can you locate the source of your worship, your worth, in a little podunk town called Bethlehem? Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said this, For what is the profit of man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Good question. To gain it all, achievement, right? Financially, relationally, 
all the different things that we, we seek to form, NT's right, those things that we seek for, and yet they actually don't make us more human, they make us less human. What does it profit to gain the whole world but lose our own souls? That's what Christmas is about. So the first thing I want you to see this morning is where do you look? It's not to the places people think about. Christmas is about looking to the unexpected place. And so does that reflect your faith here this Christmas in 2020? Secondly, though, who should be looking? And this is now when we get to some of the characters here in the story. Let's look at also verse 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 together now. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Here's the first set of characters I want you to see. It's the moral insiders. It's the religious insiders represented by Herod and the religious scholars. Herod was the great king, as I mentioned, and part of what made him great was that, that he was a great builder. He was a great architect. He built many things. He, great, the, the, he rebuilt the temple there in Jerusalem. And, and not only that, he also built whole cities uh, from the dust of the desert. Some of those remains are still there if you go to the Middle East today. He was considered a great king, and he was Jewish, but he had a problem. He had married in to pagan families along the way, and so the bloodline had been corrupted, so to speak. And so so at the same time that he was corrupted, he was also Jewish, and so he knew the stories. And so when the Magi come asking for who's the king, he feels threatened. He feels threatened because his power, because he's an adept, cynical politician, he bases his power on the things of this world. And so he looks to his bloodline, he looks to his political kingship in Jerusalem as his everything. And so this little boy king to be born that has brought these astrologers, these magicians from far away, they realize, or he realizes, that there's something going on here. But it's a threat to his power, and so he has a lust for power. And so as we know after this passage, because in verse 13 and following, the reason why in verse 12, by the way, they're told not to go back to Herod because they know that Herod wants to know where the, king, the little boy king is so that he can destroy him. And we see that happen, actually, in verse 13 and following, that all the children aged two and under in the Bethlehem region are killed in a genocidal event because he is a paranoid tyrant, bloodthirsty. By the way, it happened before, before the first Exodus event, right? Pharaoh killed all the boy children, the Hebrew children. Same thing with only the first Redeemer and Savior being rescued, Moses. It's an interesting parallel. But... But here's a tyrant, bent out of shape. But he's not the only one who's eventually bent out of shape here. It's also the religious scholars. And we didn't see that in verses 1 and 2. But in verse 3 and following, what you see are the religious scholars know the prophecy. They know more than Herod. Herod didn't know. He had to look to the religious scholars. But the religious scholars know their Bible. They, they studied it. They knew every verse in the Scriptures. They got up in the morning and they thought about Scripture. They thought about it all day long. And they went to sleep thinking about it. They had tremendous biblical knowledge. But I want you to see something. Not only didn't Herod go to worship the king, the religious scholars didn't show up either. Here's what I want you to see. I think there's something in here for us as well. Being religious is not enough. That's the storyline here. Being, you can have tremendous knowledge of the Bible. You can have it printed on your T-shirts. You can, you can have it uh, memorized. You can know whole 
whole cloths, whole sections of Scripture back and forth. You can know the narrative from Genesis to Revelation and know not God. You can be separated from Him. At the very least, you can live your life compartmentalized, uh, which is a temptation for all of us, myself included. And what do I mean by that? Well, if your definition of worship is what you do on Sundays, that compartmentalizes your understanding of worship. Therefore, what you do on Mondays through Saturdays can differ from what you do on Sundays. And so that means that you can come in here on a Sunday morning proclaiming his greatness, his lordship of your life, but then in your workplace, in your family life, in your neighborhood, in the things that you do between the Sundays, you can act like a pagan. You can live your life not in accord with what you proclaim and confess on Sunday mornings. You follow? And so there's this gap that you don't close. And that's what it's like to be a religious scholar, at least one of these types of religious scholars. And so they don't go looking for worship. They're also involved in false worship. But who is it in this passage that actually responds with true worship? It's the most unexpected party in this whole passage. It's the pagan astrologers. What did it say at the end of verse 2? They came to worship the king. Now, remember what I said about the skies. They, they would have looked to the skies, the ancient skies, and what we see is we see science. That's what astronomers do, but not astrologers. And so they looked, and they didn't see science. They saw spiritual meaning, and they were looking. And what is so fascinating is how God chooses to speak. God chooses to speak in a language that they will understand as astrologers, looking to the stars for meaning. He speaks in their language. I was thinking about an article that I read. Just a, This is a silly analogy. I'm warning you in advance. But I was thinking about an article I read just a few days ago about dogs. And, and why is it that, that we speak in such a high-pitched voice to dogs? You ever notice that if you're a dog owner, uh, you do that. Maybe you're not even aware of it, but you do that. And there's actually a biological reason why we do that. It's because dogs actually hear in that pitch and actually speak to them in the language they understand. Okay, not literally in the language they understand. They don't literally understand what we're saying, which is why you can actually berate your dog as long as you have a nice, high-pitched, positive voice. He has no idea that you're berating him, right? That's why we switch our voices to a much lower voice, Winston, right? Because they understand that. That's, oh, they're not happy with me. But in, in the high-pitched voices, oh, you're so cute, yo, you're so wonderful, right? You know what I'm talking about. All right, so... Why do we do that? Because it's in a language that they understand. Well, obviously, in a much more serious manner here, what is God doing? God is choosing to reveal himself. God is choosing to, to speak in a language they, they understand. These are pagan Gentiles. They know nothing of the Scriptures. All they know is what they see in the sky. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display Knowledge. They reveal his knowledge. The, the religious scholars had knowledge, but not this sort of knowledge. Not the sort of knowledge that would lead them to worship, you see. And yet for these pagan Gentiles, they come and they worship the true king. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, referencing a story about Nineveh, another pagan people, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, you're saying that, that the very religious scholars who knew everything actually didn't know anything. 
And it's actually the pagans, the Ninevites, who will rise up and call God blessed because they repented. In other words, what our faith is about is not religious knowledge. It's about repentance, you see. Christmas is about recognizing that and not only paying homage, but worshiping him as the true king. And yet it wasn't enough. And so they needed further revelation. They were led by this common grace to Jerusalem, but what they needed was the full revelation of God, which came in verse 6. Look with me that again. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, now you're on the way, but now you need to go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Here's where the king is. Here's where he's revealed. And what do they do? They go there, and let's give credit where credit is due. They, in the midst of this podunk little village that didn't have greatness written all over it, it wasn't a great city that they were looking for. It wasn't a great king surrounded by great power and great uh, fame and, and fortune. No. What do they do? They worship him. No wonder Anglican bishop and pastor J.C. Ryle in a commentary on this verse, he said this, they saw no miracles to convince them. They heard no wise words out of his mouth. They saw nothing but a newborn infant on the lap of a poor woman, but they worshiped. No greater faith than this can be found in the whole volume of the Bible. Now that's a strong statement, that last sentence there. But think about it. What in the world would cause them to worship in Bethlehem? There's nothing surrounding them that would would lead them to think there was a great king here. Only God could reveal that to them. Christmas is about God revealing himself to us to give us eyes to see that which we would normally not worship. That's what this is about. And so, if that's your faith, if that describes you, it leads to the very last thing I want to point out, and that is having arrived in Bethlehem, having arrived at the place of true worship, having found the newborn king, what is it that we're to do? It's in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Now, the first gift there, gold, makes sense. And frankincense and myrrh, like, those are basically essential oils, okay? Now, you probably have those in your house, actually. And you think, well, they're not that expensive. But back then, they were the gifts that you gave to a king. The reason why we have that hymn, We Three Kings, is because it was assumed that it was kings giving those gifts. But actually, logically, I think it makes more sense to realize uh, no, they were coming to a king, and therefore they were bringing kingly gifts. But these magi come with these three kingly gifts, as it were, and they were costly. It would cost them something. They were committed to this journey. It would cost them to give them these gifts. And so what you're expecting me to say, and somewhat truthfully, yes, what you're expecting me to say is, what do we do when we come to Jesus? And that is we worship him. Absolutely, we bring him our gifts. We bring him our time, our talent, and our treasure. But here's what I want you to see that the Magi couldn't see. Because in Matthew chapter 2, they didn't know what this king would do. And before you can bring him your gift, he had to first bring you his gift. Don't you see? The whole of Matthew's gospel is about revealing the gift of God. It's about revealing what was that gift that Jesus would bring 
it wouldn't be revealed in his knowledge and his wisdom as a teacher. It wouldn't be revealed as a prophet. It would be revealed in his death. The gift that he gave us was the gift of life. So, what does he do? He brings us the gift of life, friends. And so, the reason why that is so important is what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or, ready for it, gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Don't you see? Religion is about bringing our best gifts in hope that we win the favor of the God or the gods. But those gifts are perishable. But what makes your gifts imperishable, your time, your talent, and your treasure, bringing your best, your most costly, surrendering yourself to Jesus himself in your life, the only way that that becomes imperishable is that he was first imperishable to you. He first brought his eternal gift, his very precious blood, the Lamb of God himself. And so here's the question I want to ask you at the end. Do you know that gift? Have you received first the gift of eternal life that you might then, therefore, give your best gifts to him? Here's where I want to close. I want to, I want to end where I began. That's a question with the kids, all right? So you ready for this? Kids, Toleros, Salzmans, all the kids online here. Here's the, kid, here's the question I want to ask you. Are you excited about Christmas coming up? Yeah, oh, I heard some definite yeses there. Um, I hear a lot of yeses in the house. Well, and your parents probably are too. And why are you, why are you so excited about Christmas? What are you, what's going to happen Christmas morning? There are gifts coming, right? There are gifts coming. And, 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 and I know you kids are so good that you have gifts wrapped and ready for your parents as well, right? Uh, because your parents are excited about that too. But I know how deeply excited you are. And the reason why you're excited is because you don't know what's in those gifts. It's going to be revealed to you. But I want you to hear that the greatest gift was already given to us. It was the gift of the Son. Remember what it says? This is actually in Luke's Gospel, the Christmas story. It says that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was wrapped. But don't you know that as we talked about here a second ago, He gives us the gift of life because He went to the cross. And you know what happened? All of His clothes were taken off. He was wrapped in clothes and then he was unwrapped on the cross. And he revealed his love to us, the greatest gift of all. And so as you go into your Christmas celebration, because this may be the last chance I see, see you before then, as you go into your, your Christmas celebration with your parents, I want you as well as your parents to know that you already have the greatest gift, and it's Jesus Christ. And that's the power of Christmas morning. That's the meaning of Christmas And so I want you to go in ready to worship him, remembering that the right worship is found in a manger in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that even when technology fails us, as it has this morning, you are true to form your right and true worship. 
Jesus, what, what makes it possible to worship you is that you first gave us your greatest gift, the gift of eternal life. And therefore, all of our gifts are given in light of that great gift. So, Lord, take our gifts, take our time, take our talent, take our treasure, and let it echo into eternity. Let us serve you. Let us be the hands and feet of you, Lord Jesus, not simply on Christmas morning, but all year long. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you loved us so much that you would come on Christmas morning incarnate so that you might live the life that we should have lived and therefore die the death that we deserve so that on the other side of Easter morning, resurrection life. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. At this time, we want to move towards confession. And my hope is that as we do so, you can remember with me where you've been this last week. Maybe you don't even need a week. Maybe it's just this morning as you're trying to to get your kids ready for worship. Uh, For those of you online, you're right there with your kids in worship potentially, and and you're trying to figure this thing out, like, how do I do this? And, And so maybe there's frustration. But what we want you to do is have this moment of to enter into God's peace through confession. Confession is there to bring you God's peace on the other side of confession. And we write these confessions in light of the taught word. And so let's use this confession together to remind ourselves, where do we find true worship? And as we always do at the end of the confession, some time for silence. Father, our hearts have strayed and we have sought worth, value, and significance in things and in people apart from you. Our worship has degraded our humanity rather than enlarging it. Forgive us for looking for our lives in the unexpected places. Remind us that the gift of life came in an unexpected way. Lead us back to yourself through the guiding star of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for the costly gift of yourself that you gave through Christmas. Amen. Pray silently now. Father, thank you that your gift was never conditional, but was always unconditional to us. Yes, it was conditional to to fulfilling the law, which you did, Jesus, living the perfect life that we're designed for. But what we receive is that unconditional mercy and grace. And here at the table of confession, before the table of communion, we remember that you have remembered us in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you have, having entered the world, you went to the cross for us. You were the final and perfect sacrifice for our sin, which we have confessed now. Thank you that we have the assurance of your pardon on the other side. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, the real challenge is going to be, what do I do with a mic while also trying to handle the elements? We'll see about that in a second here. But we want to go now to the table, as we do here every week, to remind ourselves of what communion is about. All right. My wife's going to help me with this. And so, communion is that reminder to us that His incarnational presence 
has never left us. And so, as we do here every week at City Church, we ask this question, who should come and worship? And if we do that, before we do that, let's make sure that everyone has communion. If you do not have a communion cup, please raise your hand, and Johnny will bring that to you at this point. Communion is about reminding ourselves that the presence of God is never far from us. In fact, He's always with us. And so, as we take the elements, let's remember that God is forever present with us. And we take these elements in their minor, in the remembering that he is intimate with us. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, the representative new covenant, he said, this is my blood, poured out for the remission of many sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. We proclaim that great mystery of the faith, which goes like this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Let's continue to sing and worship him through song. This next song comes straight from Luke 1, from Mary's song as she rejoices and praises God for the gift he's given her of carrying the son. And so we worship this morning. Because he's given us himself the greatest gift we could ever have and his mercy bestowed on us. Just the blessings that he gives us as his children. Let's sing this together. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in Choices in 